So uh, obviously the Preds are out of the playoffs, so I don't know how many of you are still watching uh, hockey or not, or if you're a basketball fan, but if you've been following along with basketball, there's been a lot of noise about who is, who is the GOAT. Anyone know what I'm talking about here? The GOAT debate? Uh, I had to look it up because I just, on social media, kept on seeing images of like emojis of goats and I was like, what is this all about? And it's, it stands for the greatest of all time. So there was a poll, you know, so there's a lot of commentators and everyone saying, who is the greatest basketball player of all time? Because LeBron, you know, he kind of brought, you, you know, they kind of, they were going to lose to the Celtics and they were able to come all the way back. So people were like, is LeBron the greatest of all time or is it Jordan? So I did an informal Twitter poll up here and I asked, hey, if there is a one-on-one match, right, if people were in their prime, who would win? And it was funny because, I mean, 300-something votes, 59% said Michael Jordan. Now, my favorite comments, because obviously people could vote and then they could leave their comments, and here are a few of my favorite comments. Some, you know, some people said, hey, basketball is not a one-on-one sport. <laughs> it's like, okay, thank you. Uh, and then another one was true. Uh, though unofficial games can be played one-on-one, but with this train of thought, there are no GOATs because all the sports we think of having a GOAT are team sports, so we would have to think of the GOAT team, hashtag GOAT. <laughs> and I was like, I wish there were less characters in Twitter. <laughs> you didn't have to write all that. And then some other people were like, hey, you know, my brain cannot even comprehend why Kobe and Steph Curry would be even a part of this debate. So, you know, many people chimed into the debate and, you know, many who said, many also said it was a moot argument and that they were both great in their own regard. But heck, you know, it really couldn't have even happened anyway, right? Because Jordan wasn't Jordan in his last season and LeBron wasn't LeBron in his first season. I mean, how many of you love debates like this? Okay, let me, let's try this. Who is the best golf player? Tiger Woods, anyone else? Jack Nicholson, yeah, right? So how about the best tennis player? Serena Williams, Roger Federer. How many of you remember the Sampras, Agassi, kind of, you know, how they kept on going back and forth? I was a Sampras fan myself. How about a hockey player? Who's the best hockey player? Wayne Gretzky, oh, so pretty good. Uh, You know, I think he's at that level of Jordan, right? Or how about the best quarterback? Yeah, I have no idea. (laughs) Okay, how about the best college football team? (laughs) All right, well, we love arguments like this because as humans, we want to know who the greatest is. And today, as we continue on our series in the book of Colossians, we'll see that Christ is the greatest. It's not you, it's not our president, it's not Steve Jobs, it's not whoever you want to fill that blank in, no one is going to come as close to Christ. And as we see in Colossians 1, and if you have your Bibles, let's turn to that starting from verse 15, uh, Christ is supreme. If we were using the language of that Twitter debate, Christ is the GOAT, right? Christ is the greatest of all time. So let's look at Colossians 1, starting from verse 15, and let's see how Christ is supreme. Okay, Christ is supreme. Verse 15, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by Him, in heaven and on earth, 
the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. What we see from this passage is that Christ is supreme. Jesus is not secondary to God. Jesus is God. Jesus is the image of the invisible God come down to earth. Jesus is, in fact, the exact image or likeness of God. If you look at Hebrews uh, chapter 1, verse 2 and 3, it says this, In these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, God has appointed him, right? God has appointed Jesus Christ, heir of all things, and made the universe through him. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. We also see that Jesus is the exact image and likeness of God in John chapter 1, verse 1 to 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, right? We're we're referring to Christ here. All things were created through Him, and apart from Him, not one thing was created that has been created, right? So on the one hand, Jesus is the exact image and likeness of God. But in contrast, I mean, anytime we talk about the image of God, likeness of God, how many of you go to Genesis 1 and think about creation and what, what, what it says there, right? Genesis 1, verse 26, 27 says this, Then God said, let us make men in our image, right? Same kind of image language. Uh, according to our likeness, they will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image, right? We have that image wording there. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. So what, what's the difference here, right? Image, image, referring to Christ in God's image, and then we have us made in the image of God. I mean, how does that differ? Is, is it really saying the same thing or is it different? Well, there is actually a major difference here because we are created in his image, right? Whereas Jesus is the image. Do you see that difference? We are created in God's image, whereas Jesus is the image. In other words, we are sinful. He is holy. We can only know what we've learned, yet God is omniscient. We can only be in one place at one time, yet God is omnipresent. We have a limit as to what we can do, yet God is omnipotent. We constantly change our minds, our affections, and our priorities, yet God is immutable. In other words, he is unchanging. You see that difference here, right? Jesus is the image. We are made in his image. Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. In fact, Jesus was before creation because at creation, he was there with God the Father and God the Spirit. In other words, we see here that Jesus is was and will be he was not created that's why if you look at colossians 1 verse 16 you know it says that everything was created by him in heaven and on earth 
the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. So when we look at this, not only is Jesus, take a look at verse 18 as well, not only is Jesus the firstborn of all creation, we see in verse 18 that Jesus is also the firstborn of the dead. You see this here? Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, but he is also the firstborn of the dead. Jesus is the greatest of all time because he is the firstborn over all creation, the firstborn over the dead. In creation and resurrection, Jesus is the beginning and the firstborn. Jesus is the first and foremost of everything. And that means, friends, that Jesus has supremacy over everything. There's nothing that Jesus is not supreme over. Your worries, he is supreme over your worries. Your bondages, your chains, he is supreme over them as well. Your barriers, whatever is holding you back from experiencing an abundant life in Christ, from from experiencing intimacy with the Lord, from experiencing freedom from your sins, Jesus is supreme over that. That is what this passage is talking about here. Now, in those times, in that time, uh, there was a debate here. There was not, not the goat debate, right? But there was a debate as to who Jesus really was, right? There were some who said, no, Jesus uh, is a, a lower angelic being, right? Jesus is someone who descended from God. You know, in Islam, they recognize Jesus as a prophet, not as the son of God, not as God, but as a prophet. Even many Jews would say, yes, he was a prophet, yes, yeah, but he was a man. He wasn't God. Now, you had some people who landed on that side, and then there were others you know, who advocated that Jesus was not just a human prophet set apart, but that Jesus was God himself. So there was this debate. And just like there was that debate then, there are still many who have that debate now and aren't really sure, you know, you might have heard, hey, Jesus is God and Jesus is man, but how does that make sense, right? How does it make sense for Jesus to be both God and man? Well, if you study the scriptures, if you study the early church councils, if you study church history and all of the theologians who have done the thinking through, you know, in, in digging into the word through us, we see that Christ is indeed fully God and fully man, right? He is not a blending of deity and humanity, nor is Jesus, you know, no, nor is there some sort of absorption of his humanity into the deity, As one theologian put it, every part of Jesus' being is indwelt by deity, and yet no part is bereft of humanity. He is not God alongside of one man, but he is God in man. Here's I I love how uh, John Calvin put this. He compared the two natures of Christ. I love this imagery to our two eyes. Okay, each eye can have its vision separately. But when we are looking at anything, our vision, which in itself is divided, joins up and unites in order to give itself as a whole to the object that is put before it. Right? Isn't that beautiful? The idea that, hey, through one eye we see that Jesus is fully 
human. And through the other eye, we see that Jesus is fully God, but we only get the full picture when both of our eyes are open. Well, let's keep on reading because not only do we see in this passage that Jesus is supreme, but we also see that he is Savior. Let's look at verse 19. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated and hostile in your minds, expressed in your evil actions, but now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Right? That word fullness, right? God was pleased to have all his fullness, his fullness dwell in him. What does that word fullness mean? Now, the the Gnostics in those days taught that divine attributes and powers were actually distributed amongst many spirits, right? So that many different spirits had different divine attributes or elements. In other words, teachers in those days believed that one being or one deity couldn't hold all attributes of God. They couldn't be everything, that one deity couldn't hold everything about God in them, couldn't have the fullness of God in them. But what we see here in what Paul is writing, because as we've said before, Colossians is a letter to the church in Colossae, right? So there are certain teachings, there are certain false prophets, there are certain chains that these people are dealing with. So, so Paul is writing to a specific time, But through the Holy Spirit, I mean, we see that God is actually speaking to us as well through his word, right? So Paul here is confronting this false teaching head on by stating that all the fullness of deity is not spread out in smaller doses. He's saying, actually, all the fullness of God is in Christ himself. All the power of God, all the authority of God is not distributed among all these demigods here and there. No, all of it rests on Christ. So as a result, it's through that authority that God the Father, through God the Son, was able to reconcile everything to himself, right? Everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. In other words, we see here in this passage that Jesus is the perfect intermediary between God and us. It's not a saint. It's not Mary. It's not anyone else. The only intermediary between us and God is Jesus himself, because Jesus contains all all the fullness of God in and of himself. Jesus is enough, right? Jesus is sufficient. And what's amazing is that God has reconciled us to himself through Christ, right? So not only has God reconciled us to himself through Christ so that we can approach God, we can worship God and have communion with him, but actually God through that invites us into the ministry of reconciliation as well. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, we read about this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. How many of you have memorized that? The old has gone, the new has come. Everything is from God who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and has, right, read this, given us the ministry of reconciliation. 
That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed the message of reconciliation to the pastor, to the missionary, to the worship leader, no, to us. Therefore, we, church, the fellowship, we are ambassadors for Christ since God is making his appeal through us. We plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So just like we are reconciled to God through Christ's work on the cross, we are actually, as a result, in tandem with that, we are called to be ambassadors for Christ. We are called to be ambassadors for Christ to tell others about God so that they too can experience the kind of transformation that we experience. Now when it comes to prioritization in life, right? it seems like every day we have more and more things to do more and more projects at work, more and more homework. Even if it's the summer, I'm sure there's a lot of extracurriculars. And, and I mean, even our, our kids are doing swim team in our neighborhood. And it's like every single day. It's like I feel busier now in the summer than we did in the school year. Right? And it's like every, everything, right? Everything about life just keeps on getting busier and busier and busier. So what do we do? How do we juggle? How do we handle? How do we prioritize everything and get things done. Well, there's this, um, there's this framework called must do, should do, nice to do. Right? So think about this. A must do, should do, and nice to do. So ne- the next time you have a, a, a meeting or a project or something on your schedule or you look at your calendar and you're like, hey, what do I have to do today? What are my, what's on my to-do list? I'd encourage you to put it through this framework and say, okay, what are the things on my list that I must do What are the things that I should do, and what are the things that are nice to do, and maybe what are the things that someone else can do, (laughs) really, because we don't have to all do things ourselves. Well, when it comes to participating in this ministry of reconciliation, right, as we see here, as when it comes to us going out as ambassadors for Christ, when it comes to us telling others about God so that they too can experience the kind of reconciliation that we have with God, what do you think that falls under? Is that a must do? Is that a should do? Or is that a nice to do? Or is that something else someone else should do? Well, let's look at verse 20, Colossians 1.20 to see what the answer is. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Sorry, I'm talking about 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 5.20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making his appeal through us, we plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God is not saying here that our salvation depends on us participating in the ministry of reconciliation. Right? That is not what this is saying. Right? We're not reading here, hey, if you are saved, to be saved, you need to tell others about the ministry of reconciliation. To be saved, you need to do this, you need to do that, you need to, I mean, even yesterday night when I was reading the word, we were reading, reading scriptures with my daughters, and we were reading about uh, a Christ and, and, and what he was doing 
um, what, what he did, and I forget specifically where we read, Adeline asked me, she was like, hey, how do we know that God is God? Like, how do we know that Jesus is God? How do we know that Jesus is the one? Because they have friends who are, who are of, you know, atheist or, I mean, they, kids wouldn't say that they're atheists, but the parents are atheists. So, you know, and then we have friends who are Hindu and, and Muslim. And we, we have friends who, that aren't all Christian. And they're like, well, how do, we, how do we know? Because our kids are praying for them. Our kids have invited them, you know, to VBS. Our kids have invited them to Easter and to our church. So they're like, she's like, how do we know? And I was like, well, here's the biggest difference. In every other religion, you have to do, 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 and you might get to God. Whereas in Christ, he has done. He has done. And that's it. And that's grace. And now, because he has done, we can approach him in freedom. When it comes to our relationship with the Lord... God is not saying that our salvation depends on us telling others about Christ. But he is saying, if you are truly saved, if you truly understand what Christ has done in your life, if you truly grasp the the fact that you were once dead in your sins, apart from Christ, and now reconciled to him, would you not want to share that with others too? That's what we're reading about here. And here's the beautiful thing. When we are reconciled to God the Father through God the Son, what happens is we experience peace through God the Holy Spirit. This is the peace that our world is longing for and looking for. And the kind of peace that the world is looking for, they're they're looking for it in all the wrong places. right? Without Christ... We are jumping from one thing to the next. Without Christ, we are jumping from one relationship to the next, from one job to the next, from one show to the next. We are looking for and longing for the thing that will satisfy our souls. Yet it says in John 14, 27, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. I do not give as the world gives, so do not let your heart, hearts be troubled or afraid. Everything else that this world gives us and promises to satisfy. You know, there's fear, the fear of loss, the fear of is this enough, the fear, right, where Jesus says, no, I don't give as the world gives, so don't be troubled or afraid. Jesus is the only one who can truly satisfy when we surrender our everything to him. And this is the kind of peace that we experience in Christ and that we get to share as ambassadors for Christ. Well, in the, in the last two verses here, verse 22 and 23 in Colossians 1, we see that Christ is sufficient. But now he has reconciled you by his body, his physical body through his death, to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. If indeed you, you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith and are not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you've heard, This gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and I, Paul, have become a servant of it. So if you look at verse 23 here, what does it mean to remain grounded, right? It says, if indeed you remain grounded, what does it mean for you to remain grounded and steadfast in the truth? 
right? What does it mean to stand firm and not be shifted away from the hope of the gospel that we've heard? Well, here's another way of putting it. What tempts you away from God? Right? What tempts you to turn your focus off of God? Well, I remember moments in my life when I was uh, from the 7th grade to the 12th grade where I'd be right in my relationship with God and I'd be worshiping Him and, and trying to read the Scriptures. And, um, and, and, then, and then I'd realize, yeah, Jesus, yes, I, I, I get it, Jesus is sufficient for my everything. And then I'd see a girl and then I would start dating her and then all of a sudden, a few months later, I'd be off track. And then that would happen for a year or something like that. And then I'd come back to Lawrence like, no, 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 okay, okay, I need to, you know, place my eyes upon Christ. And then it would happen again. And what I realized is the longer I was in relationship, not to say that relationships and dating and engagement and marriage is a bad thing, but when that good thing becomes an ultimate thing, it becomes a bad thing. And for me, that good thing, which was love, became an ultimate thing where that good thing was way more important to me than God was. Well, in my freshman year at college, when I said no to girls and yes to God and decided to place my eyes fully upon the Lord and and run after Him, I started to actually notice that there was this girl running alongside me, Christina, Uh, where I could actually be in relationship with her but not have to actually look at her because I could see her in my peripheral because we were both looking toward God. Don't worry about finding the right one. Don't worry about finding the right job. Don't worry about finding satisfaction in the things of this world or or the accolades or anything like that because none of it satisfies. And good things, there's nothing wrong with watching a show. (laughs) There's nothing wrong with watching a movie. There's nothing wrong with reading. There's nothing wrong with being in a relationship with someone else. There's nothing wrong with vacationing. There's nothing wrong. But when those good things become ultimate things, that's when they begin turning us away from the Lord. God knows what you really need. And He will provide way more than you ever thought you needed. In His timing, when you place your focus on Him, running the race of faith with perseverance, steadfast, grounded in Christ, not shifting away from Him. What we see here in Colossians 1 Right Through these beautiful verses here about the centrality of Christ, we see that Christ is supreme. Right, We see here that Christ is Savior. We see here that Christ is sufficient. In other words, we see that Christ is enough. I love how one commentator summed up this passage. He said this, In relation to God, Jesus is the image of God. He is the exact and visible expression of God. Now, that's in relation to God. In relation to the first creation, Jesus is the firstborn. Jesus is the supreme Lord over all creation. 
And in relation to the church, he is the head. Jesus is the head, the undisputed authority and ruler. And in relation to the new creation, Jesus is the beginning. He is the creative pioneer and the constant source of creation. Christ, friends, Christ is supreme. Christ is Savior, Christ is sufficient, and Christ is enough. Let's pray.